back, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. Make sure you subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. Today's agenda, we will be discussing the finale of Loki, the last episode for season one. So going to be a season two. They announced it at the end of this season. Just getting some uh, housekeeping out of the way. If you'd like to reach out to us, drop us an email at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Also, expect to see additional Loki content sometime either later this week or early next week. I'll be discussing with Ray kind of the implications of what this means. The finale here of Loki means to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in general. Also expect to see another episode, a music episode coming this weekend, where Ian and I will be discussing more music of 1971, inspired by the documentary 1971 the year that music changed everything on Apple Plus. We had a previous episode last week, catch up on it if you haven't listened to it already, discussing the documentary itself and some of the music from 1971. And we're going to continue that conversation and we're actually going to use samples, music from 1971 that's been sampled in other songs as a gateway, as an excuse to discuss those artists in greater detail. So make sure you tune in for those. And without further delay, let's get into our review of Loki. Episode 6, For All Time, Always. The title, For All Time, Always, refers to kind of like the motto of TVA. And I'll give you a very, very brief opinion of the episode before I get into spoilers, because to get into anything of the episode, I'm really going to have to get into spoilers. So spoilers will come pretty soon. So I'll give you that high level, my opinion, I should say, of the episode before I get into those spoilers. I'll warn you when the spoilers begin. And I'll put some timestamps in the show notes, by the way, because I will also be talking about Rick and Morty like I have been in previous episodes very, very briefly. Not much to talk about this week uh, regarding Rick and Morty, uh, as well as a review of Black Widow, which I just saw, just came out on Disney Plus and in movie theaters as well this past weekend. And also a brief review of A Quiet Place 2, which I just watched last night, actually, and is available on Paramount Plus. Um, So in this COVID time, These movies, which are still in movie theaters, by the way, are already coming out on these streaming platforms. And I'd love to have a conversation at some point in the future about what that means for the future of movie releases in general, like how studios will be releasing their movies in the future. But firstly, the season finale of Loki. So at a very high level, my impressions here are I'm very curious to see how fans will react to this. I think this is going to be extremely divisive in how they react to it. And in that same way, I am very split on this. Uh, long and short of it is that primarily about, I don't know, 75% of this episode, and it's a relatively short episode, by the way, only 40 some odd minutes long, uh, maybe the shortest or one of the shortest of the season. And most of this episode is a conversation between three different folks within a room, basically, that's all we get. And the reason I think this is going to be divisive is because folks who wanted a more traditional action-packed finale are going to be disappointed. And yet, I really did enjoy a lot of this philosophical discussion. I've actually been bringing up a lot of these questions of control and free will. And and I think the show itself has been toying with these ideas. And we have a very long philosophical conversation between three different characters about these very topics. So in that way, I found this satisfying to kind of have all these thoughts out in the open. However, even as I appreciate that, I was a little disappointed that we don't get closure, and I'll go into that in more details when I get into deeper spoilers, and also that this 
argument is kind of an open argument. There's really not a philosophical stance that any character or the show itself takes. And uh, so in those ways, I felt like it's very interesting to raise these issues, but the show doesn't really resolve them even within the context of the show and honestly leaves the entire show on a cliffhanger is really how it leaves it. People who wanted kind of an action-packed finale are not going to get that. People who wanted to have this all tied up uh, won't get that because this is just a cliffhanger for season two. And who knows? We have to wait a year, maybe more, for season two. So that is a little disappointing. And uh, I think we didn't get some of those character payouts we were expecting to see, especially as far as Mobius is concerned or some of the other characters as well. Uh, And also, slightly to my disappointment, we did introduce a, a new character as the villain as the big bad in this uh, show. It's not a surprise, really, uh, who he is within the MCU, but is new to the to, to any watchers of the movies. If you're exclusively a watcher of the movies and don't know anything about the comics, this is a new character. And there is something disappointing about um, not having it uh, fold into the MCU more broadly. I'm very mixed on this. I like what is there. I just don't feel like it's a complete story. And, uh, and that is my disappointment. I almost feel like we need another episode at this point, which, of course, is what they want to leave us hanging. Uh, and I'm sure with season two, all these characters will be explored more. Richard E. Grant, uh, the older Loki, will almost certainly be back in some way. You know, Owen Wilson will almost certainly be back. Renslayer will be back in some way as well. Yeah, very, very mixed on this. So to now get into deeper spoilers. And if you haven't watched the show, just stop listening right now. Or skip ahead to some of the other reviews if you were listening, want to listen to those. Check the show notes for those timestamps. We're going to go full spoilers now. So as far as the synopsis of the episode goes, this is pretty straightforward. We have a few side digressions, relatively minor ones. But primarily what we have is we pick up exactly where we left off before. We have the Lokis mind melding with this Anox or whatever it's called, this um, monster that consumes all. And once they get inside of its mind, I guess, so the Lokis enter the Citadel at the end of time, as they call it. Miss Minutes interrupts them, tries to get them to change their minds, but kind of does a little exposition as well. But all this really leads to them meeting Kang for the first time. He's never referred to as Kang, by the way. And uh, if you've been listening to these episodes, you know that we've been pretty certain that Kang was going to play into this storyline. But I uh, honestly felt that there was going to be something more intimate, like maybe an alternate Loki that was kind of really pulling the strings, and uh, maybe the man behind the man would be Kang, and they would just kind of tease him here without really exploring him as his own character. But actually, this uh, Kang, or a variant of Kang, turns out to be the puppet master pulling all the strings. And this actor here, uh, Jonathan Majors, who's had uh, quite a breakout year in the past few years, he's been in... Lovecraft Country, which did not get renewed for season two after dropping a teaser, by the way. So uh, he won't be back there, but I guess he'll be busy with Loki season two. He's also been already announced as the villain in the next Ant-Man movie, Quantumania. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be playing Kang. As a matter of fact, I think he's been announced as Kang. Now, to be clear, once again, this is kind of splitting hairs, but I'm pretty sure this is not Kang because what this character explains is that he has invented the TVA. He invented this whole bureaucracy to purely tamp down the other variations of himself. One of them, I assume, being Kang, which is maybe the worst of them all. But the gist of it is that he comes from a time in the future. He's a scientist. He discovers how to 
commune with these multiverses, and he discover and he's able to initially, as he he explains, these multiverses are able to cooperate and actually share their technology and variations across all these different multiple timelines, which leads to a time of great prosperity and, and, and innovation. But some of these variations of himself are not satisfied with having control over one idyllic timeline. They actually want more. So they want to conquer the other timelines. And at some point, he is able to and we don't know exactly the details of this, he just kind of explains that he's able to build this bureaucracy, this TVA, which is able to go further and further back in time and then prune and prune and prune the timeline down to one single timeline. And as a matter of fact, not only is he able to do this, and he has been doing this for a very long time, he even knows, basically he manipulated the Lokis into this position they are in at that moment, entering into that chamber room that all of this has been foreseen, basically. And he is not there to kill the Lokis. As a matter of fact, we, you know, as we mentioned in previous episodes, it's interesting that if they really wanted to kill the Lokis, they could have easily killed them before. So he wants them there for some reason. He claims that he wants them there to hand them control of the TVA, saying, you guys can do a better job of this than me. I've done this millions of times. I've lived millions of lifetimes. I can't do this anymore. And here you go. It's your opportunity. You can have the crown, basically. And this actually leads to tension between Sylvie and Loki. Sylvie doesn't trust Loki. She thinks that Loki wants that crown. He wants to be that king. He wants to have that control. And by the way, the show has definitely teased this throughout. Uh, they even show it on the previously on where they have him say a line about him jokingly saying that he wants to be this king character. He tells so Sylvie he does not, but it's possible that his intentions are A, not as pure as he may sound, and B, maybe unknown to himself even. But beyond that, we also have the question, or I have a question, as to whether this is all a scam too. When Sylvie finally kills this character, who we have only been introduced to as he who remains, or that which remains, something like that, that even as he allows her to kill him, he doesn't put up any resistance, he says, see you soon, actually. And he claims that if she kills him, that simply as the multiverse spreads and we see it visually outside, we can actually see from outside this, this citadel, we can see basically a giant ring, which I guess represents this repeating single loop of time. And we see it's, it's already starting to fray and, and, and fracture. And as soon as he dies, it starts to fray and fracture even more. It becomes a giant mesh that is imperceptible. Even the threads become almost impossible to see. It gets so spread out. And basically says, see you soon. And he mentions to her that there will be thousands of him. There will be all these variations will be coming and they'll be coming for her and coming for everybody. But she is so fixated on her journey, you know, this this vendetta she's been on since she was a child. And Loki tries to prevent her from making this kill. And I'll rewind a little bit and get back into some of that conversation they have. But she does eventually kill him. And then that is what kind of lets sets up the the final moments of the episode where she ejects Loki, by the way, she gets her hand on this kind of super version of a temp pad that has even more control than a traditional one does. She pushes Loki into an alternate timeline. I don't know if she did that intentionally or accidentally, maybe just because of the branching, she didn't send him to the correct timeline, but he's in an alternate timeline. And then she kills this character, this um, all-powerful time being, which 
who some variant of will be Kang in some future iteration of the MCU. And then that's it. We, we, we basically end on that cliffhanger. Like the universe is in chaos at this point. I think we are supposed to believe almost everything that we hear from this character, this uh, he who remains. Just to kind of get you up on what happens to everybody else, we see Renslayer escape as well. She has a confrontation with Owen Wilson. He tries to attack her. She fends him off easily. But rather than pruning him, she escapes. Where she goes, she says she has a broader mission. She wants to save the TVA, the work of the TVA. We can't take away people's free will, Ravona. You not see that? What are you doing? What I need to do. Wait, stop. Look, maybe we can build this into something better together. I'm sorry, Mobius. Where are you going to go? In search of free will. We see um, B-20 has also started to reveal the truth to other Minutemen. And as a matter of fact, encounters one or basically gets tracked down within uh, in 2018 where we see Renslayer in her normal life. And just as a way to recruit more of these Minutemen to, to join the cause. So Renslayer does not have the control over the Minutemen that she had before. As far as Loki, we see Loki back in the TVA and we have a finale that is very reminiscent of the original Planet of the Apes, by the way, where basically Loki runs up to Mobius and B-15, the Minuteman person, to basically tell them Sylvie is going to create these alternate timelines. We have to do something quick. We need your help. And Mobius has no idea who he is. He goes, you're obviously an analyst. Please calm down. We're, we're working on this. We don't know what's happening. And Loki suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, I'm in a different timeline. And to prove that out, he looks into the giant atrium of this huge building. And the Time Lords, rather than having those traditional three alien beings that we saw in the his native TVA, we actually see the Kang character as like a giant bust of him, basically, in, in the center atrium. Which, like I said, kind of reminiscent of that original Planet of the Apes finale, where you realize that you're in an alternate timeline. And Loki makes that realization, and it's, hey, to be continued. <laughs> so not the most satisfying ending, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it leaves a lot of tantalizing things open for the next season, so I'm happy about that. I think, in, in a way, it's kind of my own disappointment. I feel if I'd known that this was going to be definitely have a season two, I wouldn't have expected things to wrap up here at the end. So I feel like that is an expectation disappointment, and I'm trying to separate that out from my feelings about the episode itself. I in general, really liked the conversation between the three characters where it's all these interesting philosophical and political uh, ideas that the show's been playing with and now kind of bring it to fruition. The idea that is control or free will more important? So for example, do you sacrifice your free will for a safe outcome? Especially in this show where theoretically, these are the type of compromises we make all the time in our own personal lives. And the question is, do you sacrifice your rights for more safety or the perception of safety? And usually in the real world, these are incremental improvements that we're talking about, right? Very minor, uh, arguably, you know, sometimes we, we surrender a lot of our rights for very little additional uh, benefit. In this 
show, and, and I do take uh, this Kang character's, I do believe that he's telling us the truth here. In this specific scenario, you are talking about the possibility of an apocalypse, right? That basically is your need for free will, for the sense that you have control over your own life so pressing that you would surrender everything, like literally, you know, the obliteration of all for that. And that's basically the question that's being asked here. Do you have a ruler who controls what you can and cannot do so you can have some control over a very limited number of options and therefore, you know, have a successful life? Or do you surrender that for the chaos that that would allow and potentially something very destructive to come, right? I understand your moral objections to what the TVA does. And my methods are deceptive. But the mission never was. Without the me, without the TVA, everything burned. And what are you so afraid of? Me. New worlds meant only one thing, new lands to be conquered. The peace between realities erupted into all-out war. Each variant fighting to preserve their universe and annihilate the others. This is almost the end. Loki is not willing to make that bargain. Kind of interesting, by the way, that Loki's made this turn. I think Loki would be 100% on board, like in agreement with uh, chaos, right? Like really just truly allowing chaos to reign. So this is quite a pivot he's made to being so conservative all of a sudden from being like literally an anarchist at one point. Or worse than that, I mean, he was an anarchist personally, but was willing to subjugate everybody, <laughs> all of creation, to his whims. Uh, and not that long ago, by the way, in the timeline of the show. Uh, so I do find that quite a pivot he's making there. Like I said, it's a little. That's the one critique I'd have is that you know, you really, Loki, the two 2012 version of Loki, should honestly be 100% on board with Sylvie there at basically saying like let let her rip. <laughs> So I do find it interesting that he's made this this turn. And I'd say that's maybe the weakness of the show is I'm not sure that given the amount of pivot that his character has to make that the show really sold that. And I mean, if it was that easy to turn Loki, then why was he so bad in the first place? Uh, so, it, you know, it, as metatextual as you can read it, uh, my critique is that we I, I really feel like we're interacting with the Loki that we saw at the end of Endgame, who's gone through that reconciliation with his brother and the loss of his father and the loss of his mother and all those things. And that version of Loki, which I really feel like would would make the decisions that this Loki is making in this show, is theoretically not the Loki we're seeing. And I think that that is a, uh, an issue that the show wasn't able to resolve. Uh, also metatextually, this is kind of interesting, is I feel in some ways that it's almost as if, <laughs> in a weird sort of way, if you want to read this as there's a theory, by the way, that all films are about film making. Like you could just basically read every single film as a, a film about filmmaking. You could just make it a metaphor for filmmaking. And here's an example of that where it's almost as if the Lokis are like walking in the room with like Kevin Feige. <laughs> and he's like, well, I've written it this far. I don't know what happens next. And in a way, it's almost like the MCU is saying, you know, it's almost like they've lined. Uh, you're, you're at the moment where 
they wrapped up uh, Endgame and they're kind of like, I don't know what happens next. So it's almost like they're winking at the audience and saying, this is where we are beginning the next cycle of MCU movies and stories, I should say, because it's going to be beyond the movies themselves. And they're kind of like, we don't know what happens next. It's all open. It's all on the table. Uh, so that's a, a, another interesting read of this, if you'd like to go that way. Uh, so that's the gist of it. Like I said, it's really one long conversation about control, about how much control you actually have. How is there free will? Um, and do you sacrifice free will for safety? Or do you allow chaos to reign regardless of what the outcome might be? Like, is that really the decision we make? So that's a, a, a heavy philosophical question. It's an interesting conversation they have. The show really can't fully address that, but it does raise it. And, and, uh, and I assume they'll have to explore this more within the next cycle of movies. And I'm pretty sure uh, Kang will be very important to that. I mean, we already know he will definitely be a character in those uh, upcoming films. But I do feel like basically getting a handle on how we address this multiverse question without having the negative outcome. Do we, are, do we allow a multiverse and all the negative consequences that are possible there? Or do we rein it in uh, and, and basically reset things to the way they are now? And I do think that is the philosophical question, a big one, by the way, that will be addressed in those upcoming films. And we will see how the, the immediate films and shows deal with that coming up soon and of course uh more directly potentially the next season of loki of course and uh, we know that the multiverse is going to tie in tightly with almost all the upcoming films there's going to be multiverse it's right in the title in the doctor strange movie with the ant-man movie will obviously have kang in it and that will definitely correlate to the events here in this series and the quantum realm is the gateway in a way to the multiverse and of course, the next Spider-Man movie too also has multiverse action going on. We know that as well from some of the, the leaks. And of course, the next season of Loki will take place in the TVA. So once again, we are going to be exploring the multiverse in almost all the next uh, uh, upcoming films. And of course, we have the Eternals coming later this year. And uh, when we see these kind of uh, spiritual beings in the Eternals, will they intervene? And maybe that's why they delayed these movies to uh, accommodate these TV shows. Will they witness this multiverse branching and will they, is this why they emerge for the first time? Is this the reason that the Eternals um, come into the MCU for the first time to help rein this in or to assist where they can? All questions that need, remain to be seen and um, unlike WandaVision, which kind of just teased Wanda's powers uh, and the Captain America show, which I felt didn't do too much more advancing the themes of the MCU in general, uh, this becomes pretty essential. So that's my opinions. Once again, just to kind of recap, uh, I think there's like a really some really good conversations, some interesting, they leave things in an interesting place for season two, but I am not sure how the Marvel fanboys will react to this. This is an episode mostly where folks speak to each other, which is fine by me, but I'm not sure how that's going to play with 13-year-old boys out there and girls. So that remains to be seen. We freed the timeline. We found him. Beyond the storm. A citadel at the end of time. He's terrifying. He planned everything. He's seen everything. He knows everything. It's complicated, okay? But someone is coming. Countless different versions of a very dangerous person, and they're all set on war. We need to prepare. Take it easy. You're an analyst, right? What division what? are you from? What are you talking about? Who are you? What's your name? Boots on the ground now, archives. 
Who are you? Okay, topic number two. I've been recapping the Rick and Morty season here. And honestly, not that this is a bad episode this week, but it almost makes me not want to <laughs> keep recapping these because I'm going to make this very brief. They fight giant sperm. That's that's the show. That's it. That's what happens. There's a little bit more to it. Uh, Morty's responsible. Morty's trying to cover up that fact. And the more he covers it up, the worse things get. So there's a little more to it. But if you see the behind the scenes, the making of, they're basically making a joke saying like, hey, I wanted to put, I wanted to have him riding on giant sperm. And then we reverse engineered the episodes from there. And uh, and that's it. That's the genesis of the episode. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> and there are some pretty funny jokes, um, some sexist mm-hmm. jokes. It makes some, uh, like I said, it makes some sexist jokes, but also has an overall feminist message. So it, it has some interesting points there. But there's not much to this. Like I said, it's got some pretty funny jokes, especially the president, the, the character plays the president of the United States, makes some pretty funny and offensive jokes. And, uh, but they are, uh, but that's it. That's what you get. So, that's all I have for that. Um, this is the kind of episode that is fine, but it really feels like filler. I mean, it really feels like a stunt. They're like, kind of like, can you believe we're doing this? And they literally say that in the making of. So that's fine. I, I think Rick and Morty could be more than that. Uh, and those are the ones I prefer more. But this is fine. It fills the time and it's funny, but not the reason I turned to Rick and Morty, to be honest. Some people love these type of episodes, right? So, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. All right, topic number three. Back to the topic of the MCU. I saw the Black Widow movie, and uh, this is going to be a very short and relatively spoiler-free review of Black Widow. I thought this was totally fine. I thought that this is really middle-of-the-pack Marvel Cinematic Universe movie for me. This is very much not near the top and not near the bottom. And honestly, this could have been like, totally at the bottom of the list of MCU. What differentiates it is a few things. First of all is I was a little surprised. It didn't feel like an MCU movie in a good way. They're definitely making a spy movie and you can see how much the creators of the movie love uh, spy movies. You have great uh, hand-to-hand combat. Feels like a Bourne movie in some of this, but the hand-to-hand combat is better than in the Bourne movies. I thought that the geography of the fights was really well done. And they have like long takes where you see bodies like kind of flying through the air and the, the, the power dynamic shifting in real time. Like it's it's really well done. Like these are some of the better fight sequences I've seen. Definitely on TV, which of course this is a movie, but even in the Marvel movies, this is they've definitely upped their game. So really good fight sequences, most of them very, very good. And also along the lines of, you know, that feels like a Bourne movie. Uh, the stunts, like the driving through European cities and demolishing cars all over the place, feels like a Mission Impossible movie or a James Bond movie. So they're definitely referencing and winking at those. You have like the Russian spies living in America, which is basically based on true story, by the way, but also was the inspiration of the show The Americans. So you have a reference to to that. So this is kind of taking all these elements of other spy movies and mashing them together in a really good way. Um, I, re- I think the beginning of the sh- movie is very strong, not only introducing this surrogate family, but also seeing how these, these girls are basically like human trafficked. And this is a heavy topic that is kind of grim in, in the film. And they're trying to get some, 
emotional and social weight from it. And I think it works showing these these girls being used as, you know, being weaponized or, or used by these powerful men. Something that does happen uh, in different parts of the world. And they do make this, um, they, they do make this like a theme in the movie. So I, I think that that was good and, and it worked. So that subtext is interesting. But also the beginning of the the film, uh, the last part of that is like creating this surrogate family, which, which I liked. Uh, and then probably for more than half the film, you have Florence Pugh, which will, who, who will definitely be in upcoming Marvel movies, who is both underused. She's a very, very talented actress. And I feel like she's a little bit underused here to her full potential, but simultaneously also very charming, very funny. There's a lot of really funny lines in this an awkward way, this kind of awkward family dynamic that is created between these characters. So the show, the the movie is able to be dark at times, very funny at times. The action is mostly good, especially early on. And I'll get to the end, which is my weak point and usually the weak point in most Marvel movies, by the way. Scarlett Johansson does a good job as usual. They flesh out her character a little bit more here than they, they have in previous movies. But she still feels like she doesn't even get to fully own her own movie, which is a little disappointing. But overall, I think it, it benefits the film to have the focus spread out. David Harbour is hilarious. Really, I mean, this is part of what escalates this, is the humor in, in the movie. And like I said, everybody's very funny. Uh, they do have their funny uh, lines and moments. But David Harbour is great. He, he, his character is primarily funny, so he gets to really get some of the juiciest uh, bits of dialogue. But here he is, by the way, just saw him in No Sudden Moves. Great in No Sudden Moves in a completely different role. I've never been super impressed with him on Stranger Things, especially the most recent season. I felt like he was playing such a kind of one-note character. But here he is back-to-back within just a week or two, two really great performances in very, very different registers. So really good job. Uh, Rachel Weisz does a really good job here too in a relatively small part. So it has a lot of uh, good things now the negative parts, <laughs> this is a minor quibble for me because like these accents <laughs> are terrible. Like, wow, these are some really, really bad Russian accents. Uh, so uh, these are talented actors and their accents are all over the place. Even like Rachel Weisz, someone like that who's as studied as that, she maybe has the best version of the accent, but even that slips sometimes. David Harbour's accent is slipping all over the place, but he's such a buffoonish character that it, if anything, it actually <laughs> might, might improve it, the, the performance. And then my big critique is the very end of the film. I, like so many Marvel movies, by the time I get to the end, the action sequence is so tedious. I'm just like, all right. It's like half an hour of action. I literally looked at the clock. It's over two, The movie's over two hours long. It's kind of zipping along for the first hour, hour and 20 minutes. Uh, there's a, a family reunion, which I'll leave it at that, at one point, which goes on for a pretty long time. But that all works. That's all working fine. And then you have this big finale where the big bad is revealed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it really is just blah, blah, blah. I'm literally just waiting for the movie to end at that point. I will say that the action sequence, as kind of drawn out and tedious as it all gets towards the end, does have some very inventive sequences. Like you have people falling through the sky, running on surfaces, which is definitely inspired, by the way, by the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse animated movie. But seeing it like with, you know, photorealistically, right, is pretty clever, right, to be able to, you know, see people like basically falling through the air and and, like uh, running along the surfaces of of, um, structures. It's pretty kind of cool. So some of the visuals were really good. Uh, Like I mentioned, the fight sequences, for the most part, excellent. Performance is all sharp. The comedy is great. And it really feels like a spy movie, right? You have a a mystery they're trying to unravel and these spies. I mean, you even have like... uh, the Mission Impossible fake faces thing happening. So it very much has an homage to many different spy 
motifs, but still melds it into the MCU. And by the way, uh, you know, especially as we're watching Loki with like the literally all of time and uh, creation on the line, when you just have a personal story between a few characters, I feel like it is good to see like such low stakes kind of makes the the film feel a little more immediate. So the, the, the one, my one last critique I would have here, by the way, is that this is obviously coming out after Endgame. So spoilers for Endgame. I assume anybody who's listening to this right now has, has must have seen Endgame, which is like the highest grossing movie of all times. So I'm pretty sure you've watched Endgame or you wouldn't even be listening to this. But just in case, uh, Black Widow, Scarlett Johansson's character, uh, dies in Endgame. She sacrifices herself. And there's two things here that I find problematic about that. One is that it does slightly take away the tension in the film to know this is a prequel, obviously, and that she will obviously survive, right? There's no ever a threat of her dying. Not that you would really assume that a Marvel character will die, honestly, because they're usually, even when you think they're dead, they come back. So not that there's that much, but there still could be a sense of stakes if we didn't know for certain that, of course, she's alive because she's in the two Avengers movies that capped off the that cycle of films. And secondly, I think that it is a slight disservice to her character in Endgame. There is something really tragic in Endgame. Scarlett Johansson's character always felt like an outsider. Here's somebody who had been a spy her whole entire life, you know, sacrificed her life, had switched from one side to the other to join the Avengers. And in many ways... She was alone. She and there was a, a sadness to her that she really and to to Scarlett Johansson, who a very very underwritten character by the way, but to her credit, Johansson was able to imbue her with this humanity and like I said, a real sadness in those last Avengers movies where she is basically sacrificing herself because she really doesn't have anything to go back to, and this undercuts it a little bit for her to basically you know in this storyline to have just reunited with this surrogate family of hers you know she could still make the same decision obviously but my point is it doesn't necessarily enhance that to have her in this circumstance so overall i like the film it's fine it's not you know it's not essential i would say you definitely don't have to see it if you like johansson's character it fleshes her out more um the action sequences are, are good mostly the end is tedious as is almost every single Avengers movie and, and uh, MCU movie at the end. The last half hour is almost always tedious. Uh, and if anything, the action is a little more inventive. Um, so there's a lot of conveniences in the plot. But of course, hey, that's how these movies go anyway. So like I said, it's fine. Uh, not essential, but better than average. Okay, so topic number, what are we up to four? Okay, so topic number four, last topic, A Quiet Place 2. Another very brief review here. Quiet Place 2, by the way, if you, you may have already seen in theaters, it's done very well in theaters, and now it's available on Paramount+. Plus. That's how I saw it. I have Paramount+, Plus, so now I was able to watch this for free. Uh, it's still in theaters, by the way, if you happen to go see it there. And once again, relatively spoiler-free um, here as well. I'm going to try to be as spoiler-free as possible. But we pick up, well, we actually pick up in a flashback sequence, which is excellent. The flashback sequence is really thrilling here. Really had my heart racing right out of the gate. And I think that John Krasinski, as a director, for, for those who don't know, Krasinski directed this film and has actually um, wrote this one as well, based on the story from the first. 
and uh, directed both of these, Quiet Place 1 and Quiet Place 2, or the first one was just called Quiet Place. Um, both available on Paramount Plus, by the way, if you have Paramount Plus. And um, this opening sequence is very well done. It's really thrilling. And of course, it allows Krasinski to be in the film for a little bit. After that flashback, we jump directly into a continuation immediately from that kind of kick-ass last moment of A Quiet Place, the first film. And it's a little distracting, by the way, a little distracting for me to see the kids have grown up. You know, they're two years older, and then they're actually flashing back a year earlier. So they they look much, much older than they should be. And it is a little distracting to me. But then again, hey, that's what happens when you have um, child actors. But in general, um, you know, despite that distraction, everyone gives a really good performance, especially Millicent Simmons, uh, the deaf actress um, from the first film and here as well. She's especially good here. And she really has to, she carries most of the heft of the film. The story story gets much bigger, the mythology of these creatures and um, what's happening within the world as well gets much larger here. I assume the budget seemed to be larger as well but relatively contained. And what I would basically say, on the positive side, the story opens up. Uh, They advance the same themes of family, uh, another film about family, following Black Widow. They advance those themes pretty well. And there are some really, really thrilling edge-of-your-seat sequences. On the negative side, I would say, is that this definitely, as a thrill machine, doesn't work as well as the first film because the simplicity of that first film, first of all, there was a lot less talking. There's a lot more talking in this film versus last time. Uh, So a lot of the very clever requirement for people to communicate without speaking to each other. There's also a lot of, you know, world building in that first film where you see how they're able to live so quietly. They have all these little hacks that they've done to survive, which are kind of defined but not expanded necessarily in this film. They kind of just build on what, or they, I should say, they just continue what's already been defined before without adding much more to it. There is a new location, primary location, that has some kind of cool gotchas that they use within the plot. But I would say in general that the real tension that happened in the first film was its simplicity. Was this about this really well, it's almost like a submarine movie in a way, right? Where you're kind of trapped in a very enclosed space. You know the space very well as a viewer. You're very intimate with every inch of that house. And uh, it makes the uh, tension really ratchet up when it gets invaded, let's say. In this film, uh, opening things up significantly makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit more about, you know, would it be possible to do these things? Like, you know, can you actually traverse a huge area without making any sound? Uh, You know, that's questionable. So uh, opening up things makes it a little less credible. Uh, And also, like I said, you know, you have towards the end, let's say, a uh, thrilling, um, a relatively thrilling uh, sequence, but it's in a new location. You don't know the geography of it at all as you enter a new place. So that kind of doesn't make it more suspenseful. It makes it a little less suspenseful because you don't, you know, I guess from a jump scare perspective, it's like you don't know what's around the corner, but from a suspense perspective, uh, you don't know the geography of the place. So it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't let you get ahead of the character to allow that suspense to build. So it's fine. It's good. I love the first film. The first film is incredibly tense, even after seeing it more than once. This one not doesn't work as well, I would say, but it does expand the world and it does leave things. It tries to have another one of those really like pump your fist finales. Doesn't work as well, but it uh, does leave things in a positive place. I would say I'm probably, I'd be more than 50-50 likely to see the next one based on this one. 
I'm pretty sure there will be another one because it kind of ends on yet another one of those triumphant, uh, potentially triumphant moments. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger as opposed to where I ended on the first one and I like, really couldn't wait to see the second one. So it's, you know, diminishing returns, but in some ways better than the first one in, in the way that it's expanded the world successfully. In other ways, not as taut or not as strong in its simplicity, let's say. And, uh, and maybe this is a lesson for folks, by the way, that suspense sometimes really requires relative simplicity. So the more you can put the audience into the shoes of the character, the more tension and suspense they're going to feel and the more plot you throw at the character usually as you're trying to keep all these different logistical situations in mind. And to that point, they literally have the characters all divergent at one point. So they're not even working collaboratively. They're all in separate storylines simultaneously. That doesn't necessarily ratchet up tension oftentimes. If anything, it kind of diffuses your... So for all those reasons, I think that the uh, first one is... Uh, more effective film. All right, so that's my wrap-up. I have a mixed review for <laughs> for A Quiet Place Part 2. I have a mixed review, but mostly positive, for Quiet Place Part 2, by the way. I have a mixed review, but mostly positive, for Black Widow. I have a mixed review, but somewhat positive, for Rick and Morty. And I have a mixed review, but mostly positive, <laughs> for Loki, the finale. So uh, a week of mixed reviews for me. But I do recommend all those, especially if you are, once again, these are all kind of like franchises. If you are interested in any of these franchises, these are all interesting to you. If this is an entry point to any of you, if this is the first time you're watching Rick and Morty, first time you're watching an MCU show, like if Loki is the first time you've seen anything MCU, if Black Widow is the first time you've ever seen MCU, if Quiet Place 2 is your entry point, I would say not a good entry point if you're a novice at any of these. Uh, if any of them, I would say that Black Widow is probably the closest to an entry point for anybody because it's pretty standalone and it's a prequel. So it kind of actually allows you, you could actually watch this and then get caught up on the MCU. So that's almost an entry point. Everything else here, only for fans. But if you are fans, I think they're all valuable. All right, so that wraps up for me. Once again, thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe. And there'll be more content this week. There'll probably be more Loki content. I'm not sure when that episode will drop. It all depends on when I can interview with Ray. It might not come out until next week, but we will talk about what's next for the MCU. How did he like Loki's finale? I think he's going to have a mixed opinion of it as well. Uh, and also this weekend, more music from 1971. Samples, songs that you know, popular contemporary songs that sample songs from 1971. Some of those songs, very famous songs that you may not realize were being sampled. Some of those songs, pretty obscure songs, but we will be covering that and that'll be coming out this weekend. So keep your ears peeled for that. Make sure you subscribe so you know when that episodes are available. I'll talk to you soon.